Welcome to Breakout Culture. This is episode 17, which makes it sound like a life sentence, but we hope <laughs> that you are enjoying it. I'm Ed Vasey. I am none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. It's making me choke oh, up. <laughs> Who what are you? I'm Charlotte Fetcard, and I'm the associate editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And apologies to any listeners who have not listened before. Ed's usually very normal. <laughs> <laughs> I've got, uh, I don't know what it is, episode 17 fever. <laughs> anyway, we've got a great episode lined up for you. At the beginning of December, it'll be 100 years since Wilfred Owen's first ever collection of poetry was published with an introduction by Siegfried Sassoon. To celebrate that, and to coincide with Armistice Day on the 11th, The Independent launched a new podcast. It's called Love and War, and it sheds light on the fact that the great First World War poets were either gay or bisexual, and suggests very compellingly that it's their sexuality which gives their poetry its extraordinary intensity. The podcast has been created by Kevin Childs, who also plays Siegfried Sassoon, and he's here with us today with Sam Fairbrother, the actor who plays Wilfred Owen. Hello, Kevin and Sam. Hello. Good morning, Kevin and Sam. And some of our listeners will go, know Kevin already because he was also behind the Dan Cameron podcast that we featured here during the last lockdown. So it's very good to have you back with us, Kevin, to tell us about Love and War, which is made up of actors reading some of the poems and the poet's first-hand accounts of what life was like on the front line. Now, I've listened to the podcast and the way it can best be described is... It's actually quite transformational because it's made me see the poetry in a completely different light, not just as erotic, but so much more tender and powerful and moving because there was so much more to lose. So before we talk to you, Sam, about playing the young Wilfred Owen, Kevin, can you tell our listeners more about how you came to put this together? And I gather you've also written a book. Uh, I have, yes. Um, I mean, it all started a couple of years ago with the uh, anniversary of the, the end of the First World War. And I had been thinking about uh, the war poets and the relationship between uh, men who were fighting on the front, uh, who were also happened to be gay or bisexual, and uh, what that what that would mean. And I'd always known that people like Sassoon and uh, Wilfred Owen were gay. And then with a little bit more digging, I discovered that there was a lot more going on than just those two. And I thought... One of the, we just don't know this. We're not taught this in school. You know, when I, I mean, it was a hundred years ago now, probably when I was um, uh, being taught Wilfred Owen in school, nobody mentioned his sexuality at all. And then, of course, we had Clause 28 and nobody would have been able to mention his sexuality. So um, it was revelatory for me to then go back and look at these poems and realise that what what they were doing was essentially writing love poetry and using the language of love poetry and erotic poetry in order to kind of convey the message of uh, make love not war if you like to uh, to their readers Wilfred Owen was completely unknown before 1920 I think he'd had one or two poems published in uh, various journals but otherwise uh, the public the poetry reading public didn't know him and interestingly it was that's a very so sad though because that's he was he was only known posthumously then yes he was only known posthumously um Whereas uh, Sassoon had had two volumes of poetry published during the war and uh, Ivor Gurney had had a po uh, poetry published. And of course, Rupert Brooke, who's one of the other main protagonists in this uh, podcast, 
um, was very well known before the war. So he was already a famous poet when he joined up in 1914. So I we put together this podcast with uh, five other actors and me, and we've had some very good feedback about it. Uh, I, I think it's very moving. I think it's very um, illuminating. Oh, so do I. And just to have these voices sort of coming in and speaking from 100 years ago and uh, telling us how they feel. So that was the kind of motivation around it. I wanted to explore the sexuality, the feelings and the the whole idea of you know the poet the poems that we're so familiar with actually being love poems so let's have a quick chat with sam now who played wilfred owen who died as we uh, said at just the age of 25 shot a mere week before armistice on the 4th of november in france now owen's been described as the keats of the trenches so sam we'd love to know what it's like to play someone uh, as kevin has teed up you're playing someone sort of frozen in time so full of passion and life, but who you know is going to die. It initially was very hard to read poems that remember from school, as I'm sure, as Dr. Kev says, and I'm sure people will agree that are listening, um, that were just placed in front of you for a couple of days a year in November. Um, and then actually read the letters that completely burst open the, the life of this man and how dreadful it was, how, how many people he j- just saw sort of blown to smithereens in front of him, how many people he had to sign off as the dead. He went mad. And I think that that was the joy of the script, that it means that when one returns to the the poems now, I certainly feel, I hope others do through listening to it, that there's a much richer life being presented than perhaps the staid picture we are often presented. Now, I agree. And um, that's what I think is really interesting about it all, because there's there's a bit when... Sassoon talks about his illegal forbidden love and says, uh, he's talking about the men around him and he says, my eyes feasted but my body did not and it took Rupert Brooke with the confidence of God to brag about that kind of love. And so obviously, you know, it's completely forbidden, illegal and everything. So were you were you aware as well, not just of the horror of war, but of that sort of pent up passion as well in the character, Sam, when you were playing him? Um, no, not really. Um I I didn't know I did I didn't know who was gay until the the script was given to me and he really really was like he was a real he it just comes across as a real queen <laughs> like a real a, a sort of real dyed in the wool sort of homosexual um and there's no sort of there's kind of none of that upper class english we mustn't talk about that I don't know whether it's because he was, you know, son of traders or perhaps not from that class. That he really, I don't think, cared at all about about social mores. I think I agree. I think he had a sort of confidence. He had a confidence about his sexuality, which I think even someone like Sassoon, who was much more circumspect, um, didn't have at the time. And I, I think you're probably right. I think it's something to do with his class background. He, you know, Sassoon, Graves, they all came from this sort of upper middle class, public school educated, Oxbridge, um, those that had the time to go there. Uh, backgrounds, uh, Sassoon is many things, one of which is uh, he was actually, a, a, you know, a monumental snob, amongst other things. And yet he finds uh, an attraction towards uh, he, he always refers to him as Little Owen. Let's turn to um, confident Little Owen. And I think, Kevin, you've asked Sam to read a poem. 
Barbara yes. Fred and Ross. Yes. Uh, it's it's one of the more obviously uh, tender uh, and, in fact, quite erotic poems that he wrote. It's called Futility. And uh, I'll hand you, hand you over to Sam. Move him into the sun. Gently its touch awoke him once, at home, whispering of fields half-sown. Always it woke him, even in France, until this morning and this snow. If anything might rouse him now, the kind old sun will know. Think how it wakes the seeds, woke once the clays of a cold star. A limbs so dear achieved, a sides full nerved, still warm, too hard to stir. Was it for this the clay grew tall? Oh, what made fatuous sunbeams toil to break earth's sleep at all? Gosh, that's amazing. Thank you, Sam. Well, that was fantastic. Thank, Thank you. you very much. And you can find Love and War on Acast, and we'll put the link to it up on our website as well, because you can get it on the independent website as well, can't you, uh, Kevin? You can. In fact, it's syndicated, so it's available on Spotify and Google and Apple and uh, all of the kind of podcast um, places you can find it on. If you just look for Love and War, uh, you'll be able to find it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to turn from illicit love and war to rock and roll now, because just the other day, a friend, knowing my undying passion for the Rolling Stones, sent me a new book by the photographer Gerard Mankiewicz. It's called Going Home with the Rolling Stones 66, and the photographs are totally gobsmacking. When Gerard was hardly out of short trousers and the Stones were just becoming rock gods and splashing out on new homes and cars, they invited Gerard to photograph them at home. According to Gerard, he kept these photos stashed in a supermarket carrier bag under his desk. And this is the first time since 1966 that they've ever been published, showing the Stones in a completely new light. Well, needless to say, I rang Gerard up immediately and insisted he come on our podcast and tell us all about it. And luckily he said yes. So hello, Gerard. Oh, hello, everybody. Hi. Lovely to be here talking to you. Thank you for obeying Charlotte's instructions. <laughs> well, I've tried to, to follow them to the letter. <laughs> <laughs> we all do. It's the easiest way to get through life. <laughs> I just want to ask, Gerard, how on earth did you get the gig? Because you were only 20 when you took these photographs. So how come the Rolling Stones said, we need Gerard to photograph us in all our suburban <laughs> splendour? Well, um, I'd been working with them since the beginning of 1965, and I met them through their manager, Andrew Lou Goldham, who managed Marianne Faithful, who I started working with in 1964. So there was this progression. Andrew really loved the work that I was doing with Marianne and and asked me to work with the Stones. And... um... You kept these amazing photographs stashed under your desk. And well, why have you suddenly decided to publish them half a century later? Uh, OK, well, it's not, it, it, it's, it's not quite as, as Charlotte <laughs> described. The pictures had no lasting value as far as anyone was concerned at the time. And so after a few months, the negatives were sort of redundant. They went into a bag because one of the early lessons... Uh, that I I was taught was not to not to throw anything away, 
And so I put them in bags without really thinking about any any sense of whether they would be worth anything, whether anybody would be interested in them. And I and those bags stayed with me until the early 80s when uh, a gallery in London called the Photographer's Gallery gave me my first show. And that's when I dug everything out. Well, it's quite frustrating for our listeners not to be able to see these photographs, though they can, of course, buy the book. <laughs> but it was extraordinary to see these such young megastars being so suburban. I mean, you've got Charlie Watts washing up and standing proudly by <laughs> his very expensive dinner plates and some sort of <laughs> antique dresser. You've got Bill Wyman with his dog in the kitchen and showing off his new MG. And perhaps the the greatest shock of all is Keith, not just with his dog, but with his Rolls Royce and his horse and his gorgeous picture-perfect thatched beam house, which is a bit more Alan Sugar than the Rolling Stones. What, what, we, what did you think at the time, Gerard? <laughs> I love that, Alan Sugar. Um, of course, I'm, I, I knew, you know, they were the Rolling Stones. They were, if not the biggest, the second biggest band in, in the world at the time. And, and I knew that, but to me, they were just chums and chums, yeah. And when this whole idea came up that magazines were beginning to want photographs of them at home, um, it was quite clear that they didn't want to be invaded in, in, in their domestic privacy um, by strange photographers and they didn't they they didn't didn't want that so it was suggested that i came in as a friend with a camera and take the pictures but the whole point of the at home genre it wasn't really established in the way that hello magazine displays it in every week now it was it was a sort of newish thing and the stones being the stones were really taking the piss out of the whole at home genre uh, and I was too, hence the pictures of Keith sitting on a, on a disused lavatory in the middle <laughs> of his garden and and Charlie posing by his wife's laundry in the in the garden. I mean, you know, it, it was just a way of trying to portray their domestic life, but at the same time, slightly tongue in cheek. Well, I think what's so interesting is it, it gives away so much about them because, um, you know, Mick at least sort of is stays very urban, moving from one Marleban muse house to his big block. But the really interesting thing was, of course, you know, Brian Jones, who remains unbelievably sort of bohemian with all his key limbs and his mess and his murals. I just thought it put them all in a completely new light, particularly Keith. I think that so many rock stars harboured the sort of fantasy of living in the country with a big garden. And Keith got into that very early on. And, and Redlands, he'd only just bought it. So it was all, uh, it was all uh, new and fresh. Now, looking back on it nearly 50 years later or whatever it is, um, you know, 55 years, for goodness sake, um, it, it, they I look quite... I wasn't going to say anything, Gerard. <laughs> it's a long, long, long time ago. I'm, long, I'm amazed long. he's still alive, frankly. But um, I mean, I get, I get, sort of get the feeling. I mean, I have a small house in Oxfordshire, and I, and I go there to escape the, you know, the relentless pressure of celebrity. And I can imagine that um, that's probably what the Rolling Stones felt. That if you buy you're quite house... like Charlie Watts, can I point out, Ed? Because you are. I'm always looking at you with your washing, just like yes. Charlie Watts is photographed with his clothes horse. We record this podcast. <laughs> we record this podcast. We have video, and 
my laundry is always behind me. But I noticed, Garrett, you have, because you're a rock god, you don't have your laundry behind you. You have a gold disc propped up against the wall. Whose gold disc is that? Oh, well, I I didn't realise you could see it, but um, it's... <laughs> I'll tell you who it is. It's ABC Lexicon of Love. Um, oh, which I, yes. Which I think was 1982. And yes, it, when I, I was I, a youngster. You were a well, youngster. I loved... A, I used to live next door to one of ABC... And um, I loved ABC so much. I used to. I didn't know that I lived next door to a, a member of ABC. So I used to play the look of love very loudly, until my neighbour knocked on my door and introduced himself and said, "I'm terribly sorry. I really can't bear to go on listening to my own music <laughs> so loudly all of the time." No, that's uh, brilliant. <laughs> That's a great so you've just story. Ruined, uh, you've just ruined Gerard's anecdote. Oh, you know, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but I just... Uh, go on, Gerard. <laughs> no, no, your story I'll start is... Telling my, I'm going to start uh, telling my Rolling Stones anecdotes in a minute. But oh, Gerard, well, tell got, me why you've got you've, the lexicon of love. Well, the lexicon of love... On your wall. I, I started working with ABC right about the time of their first single, and we got on very well, and, and the album sleeve came up, and we, we planned to do it. And when they came into the to the studio to talk about it, they asked me where all my gold discs were. And I said, well, actually, I don't have any. You know, nobody's ever given, <laughs> given me a gold disc. And they said, well, that's ridiculous. We'll give you a gold disc when we have our first hit album. And I said, OK, great. Thank you very much. And And they did. And I love it. I thought it was so nice of them to not only spot that I was missing gold discs from a long, long starry career, but also that, that um, they actually, you know, did what they said they'd do. So I will always be grateful to them. I only knew one, but he was lovely, Mark, who was my next door neighbour. And if he's listening, which I'm sure he is. Um, hello, Mark. Uh, did, you, uh, did he sort of borrow cups of sugar off you and stuff? Yes. <laughs> I do yes. love the fact that you were told, you were told by a crazy lifestyle rock star to turn your music down. down yes that's great charlotte before this becomes gerard and ed interviewing charlotte can we return to the person we've actually invited on to talk about his work because you've worked with the rolling stones and abc and many others and in fact uh we had phil edgar jones from sky arts on recently and i know that you are doing a six-part series for sky arts about in fact, it links to what you said at the very beginning, the cultural impact of music photography, because basically what I took from what you were saying was in the 60s and 70s, nobody was that interested. They were it wasn't regarded as a sort of art form, if you like. And now, of course, people pay thousands, if not hundreds of thousands to have a limited edition print uh, on their wall. Um, so tell us about the cultural impact of music photography. Well, of course, it is very interesting that, that actually uh, music photography, album sleeves in particular, meant a great deal to people in the 60s and the 70s. Oh, that's it a was, very good it, point, yeah. It, it did, and, and anybody who has a, any sort of record collection has, has a collection of music icons. But it wasn't until really uh, the 90s that music photography began to be appreciated as fine art. And Icon Music Through the Lens, which is showing on Sky Arts at the moment, every Friday at 10 o'clock, um, is a series of six one-hour programmes exploring through interviews with nearly 70 photographers and almost as many artists, commentators, curators, intellectuals, 
academics, uh, designers, etc., talking about not just their experiences, but music photography across the last 60 or so years. And it's it's a fantastic programme. I mean, I'm thrilled with it. It's, it's taken us nearly 10 years to make and um, we're, we're absolutely delighted. I, d- I just want to ask you two more things while we've got, while we've got you on, Gareth. Um, one is, um, talking of all these iconic images, we just obviously want to hear little bit about Hendrix. Gerard, you've worked with basically everyone, haven't you? (laughs) (laughs) In the the sort of great balloon debate of rock stars, I I can basically pick any name and you'll tell me a story. (laughs) Well, no, unfortunately, I wish that was true. I wish that were true. The list of people I haven't photographed is is incredibly long and, and much longer than that of the people I have. But I photographed quite a lot of people. And when people look at my books or or look at my career at all they always get surprises like the abc thing well hendrix um i photographed hendrix twice in quite rapid succession early in 67 uh, uh and i was asked to do it by his manager Chaz chandler who was a friend of mine and jimmy was um so gentle incredibly humble very modest very quietly spoken very funny. He laughed a lot. Uh, he was incredibly still and quiet. And he was very, I wouldn't want to say he was easy to photograph. He was easy to be with. And he took my minimal direction. And he just, what he did, which was so absolutely fantastic, and for which I'll ever forever be grateful, is he gave me that access. He looked into the camera and he let me and the camera in. And we were able to record a series of portraits, not just the very famous picture of him against the white background with his hands on his hips, but but many others within the session, all of which tell you something about him. You know, there are no, there's, there's no music, there's no instrumentation. I didn't photograph him with his guitar. Um, I didn't photograph him in colour because I was determined to photograph him with dignity and gravitas because I wanted to treat him like a serious musician and not like a sort of disposable pop uh, hero. And, and so I decided that black and white was the format. And I mean, of course, it was a ridiculous thing to have done, to have insisted on just shooting black and white. But that's what I did. And, and that's and that's how it turned out. And it, interestingly, the pictures were not really that successful at the time I took them because everybody wanted colour pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and so my black and white portraits were rather left behind. And because he's career took off so rapidly and because of his sensational musicianship and his performance uh, everybody wanted pictures of him playing guitar and so really although my photographs were used a bit um, around 67 they didn't really come into their own until I started showing them in the in the 80s and the 90s and then uh, one of them was used on an album cover and then it all took off and, and my pictures became the sort of iconic go-to image of Jimmy. 
Yeah, well, how amazing. You had a second question, Charlotte. No, the second one. I just wondered if the stones have ever been photographed at home again since. Um, now, that's also a jolly interesting question. But, I, you know, I don't think so because <clears throat> not, not in general. I don't think anybody has been able to do a full spread of all five stones or four stones at their at their homes. I don't think that happens. Uh, and I think that was no. closed down quite quickly. Yeah, I, I've loved this interview, as you could probably tell. <laughs> but I'm afraid that my mind wandered to asking you the most irritating question of all. <laughs> I know on, what's then. coming. I, 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 bet I, I do. You I know exactly it. what's you coming. Go on. Um, I know it's like choosing a favourite child. <laughs> you <laughs> phrased it funny. exactly the way I was going to phrase it too. <laughs> Go on then. Who, who's the your favourite person that you've ever photographed? Or your favourite photograph? It could be your favourite. Or your favourite photograph? Your favorite photograph. Yeah, no, yeah. Uh, it's definitely not. The, <laughs> it's not going to be the same thing. Well, it, it it is a terrible, difficult question to answer because uh, because really because there are so there are so many in the archive. I mean, the Hendrix pictures have a life and an energy of their own, and they're so famous and I'm associated with them. But I mean, my pictures, some of my early pictures of Marianne Faithful are absolutely lovely and I love them. My pictures of Kate Bush, um, particularly the Wuthering Heights portrait that sort of launched her, is one of my all-time favourites. I photographed Eurythmics and um, one of the albums I did for them was Revenge and I love that portrait that I did. So it's it's really difficult to just pick on one. It would feel unfair. And as you said early on, you know, it's like choosing your favourite child. I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to upset <laughs> the others. And it's a big family. Well, it's been an absolute delight. Frankly, I could have talked to you for hours. But I agree. Um, oh. Thank I'm thrilled. You. Thank you. That's lovely. Thank you Brilliant. so much, Gary. It's fantastic. It's an absolute pleasure. Lovely, lovely to talk to you both. Thank you. That's all we've got time for this week. We'd love to play out on the Rolling Stones singing Going Home, but we just don't quite have the budget yet. But please keep listening and to our sister podcast, House Guest, with Carol Annette talking to big names in the interior design business that you'll find on our website, countryandtownhouse.co.uk. You'll also find there details of everything we've talked about, including Jared's book and the Love and War podcast. And if you haven't done so already, please sign up to our newsletters at countryandtownhouse.co.uk slash newsletter and have a look at our fabulous Great British Brands Christmas gift guide because it seems we're going to have some kind of Christmas after all. Thank you, Boris. And thank you for listening <laughs> and see you next week.